Chapter One of the Book of Tea by Kakuzo Okakura. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The Book of Tea by Kakuzo Okakura. Chapter One The Cup of Humanity. Tea began as a medicine and grew into a beverage. In China, in the eighth century, it entered the realm of poetry as one of the polite amusements. The fifteenth century saw Japan ennoble it into a religion of aestheticism, teaism. Teaism is a cult founded on the adoration of the beautiful among the sordid facts of everyday existence. It inculcates purity and harmony the mystery of mutual charity, the romanticism of the social order. It is essentially a worship of the imperfect, as it is a tender attempt to accomplish something possible in this impossible thing we know as life. The philosophy of tea is not mere aestheticism in the ordinary acceptance of the term, for it expresses conjointly with ethics and religion our whole point of view about man and nature. It is hygiene, for it enforces cleanliness. It is economics, for it shows comfort in simplicity rather than in the complex and costly. It is moral geometry, inasmuch as it defines our sense of proportion to the universe. It represents the true spirit of Eastern democracy by making all its votaries aristocrats in taste. The long isolation of Japan from the rest of the world, so conducive to introspection, has been highly favourable to the development of teaism. Our home and habits, costume and cuisine, porcelain, lacquer, painting, our very literature, all have been subject to its influence. No student of Japanese culture could ever ignore its presence. It has permeated the elegance of noble boudoirs, and entered the abode of the humble, our peasants have learned to arrange flowers, our meanest labourers to offer his salutation to the rocks and waters. In our common parlance we speak of the man with no tea in him, when he is insusceptible to the serio-comic interests of the personal drama. Again we stigmatise the untamed aesthete, who, regardless of the mundane tragedy, runs riot in the springtide of emancipated emotions, as one with too much tea in him. The outsider may indeed wonder at this seeming much ado about nothing. What a tempest in a teacup, he will say. But when we consider how small, after all, the cup of human enjoyment is, how soon overflowed with tears, how easily drained to the dregs in our quenchless thirst for infinity, we shall not blame ourselves for making so much of the teacup. Mankind has done worse. In the worship of Bacchus we have sacrificed too freely, and we have even transfigured the gory image of Mars. Why not consecrate ourselves to the queen of the camellias, and revel in the warm stream of sympathy that flows from her altar? In the liquid amber within the ivory porcelain, the initiated may touch the sweet reticence of Confucius, the piquancy of Lao Tse, and the ethereal aroma of Sakyamuni himself. 
Those who cannot feel the littleness of great things in themselves are apt to overlook the greatness of little things in others. The average Westerner, in his sleek complacency, will see in the tea ceremony but another instance of the thousand and one oddities which constitute the quaintness and childishness of the East to him. He was wont to regard Japan as barbarous while she indulged in the gentle arts of peace. He calls her civilised since she began to commit wholesale slaughter on Manchurian battlefields. Much comment has been given lately to the code of the samurai, the art of death which makes our soldiers exult in self-sacrifice. But scarcely any attention has been drawn to teaism, which represents so much of our art of life. Fain would we remain barbarians if our claim to civilization were to be based on the gruesome glory of war. Fain would we await the time when due respect shall be paid to our art and ideals. When will the West understand, or try to understand, the East? We Asiatics are often appalled by the curious web of facts and fancies which has been woven concerning us. We are pictured as living on the perfume of the lotus, if not on mice and cockroaches. It is either impotent fanaticism or else abject voluptuousness. Indian spirituality has been derided as ignorance, Chinese sobriety as stupidity, Japanese patriotism as the result of fatalism. It has been said that we are less sensible to pain and wounds on account of the callousness of our nervous organisation. Why not amuse yourselves at our expense? Asia returns the compliment. There would be further food for merriment if you were to know all that we have imagined and written about you. All the glamour of the perspective is there, all the unconscious homage of wonder, all the silent resentment of a new and undefined. You have been loaded with virtues too refined to be envied, and accused of crimes too picturesque to be condemned. Our writers in the past, the wise men who knew, informed us that you had bushy tails somewhere hidden in your garments, and often dined off a fricassee of newborn babies. Nay, we had something worse against you. We used to think you the most impracticable people on the earth, for you were said to preach what you never practised. Such misconceptions are fast vanishing amongst us. Commerce has forced the European tongues on many an eastern port. Asiatic youths are flocking to western colleges for the equipment of modern education. Our insight does not penetrate your culture deeply, but at least we are willing to learn. Some of my compatriots have adopted too much of your customs and too much of your etiquette in the delusion that the acquisition of stiff collars and tall silk hats comprised the attainment of your civilization. Pathetic and deplorable as such affectations are, they evince our willingness to approach the West on our knees. Unfortunately, the Western attitude is unfavourable to the understanding of the East. The Christian missionary goes to impart, but not to receive. Your information is based on the meagre translations of our immense literature, if not on the unreliable anecdotes of passing travellers. It is rarely that the chivalrous pen of Lafcadio Hearn, or that of the author of The Web of Indian Life, enlivens the oriental darkness with the torch of our own sentiments. Perhaps I betray my own ignorance of the tea-cult 
by being so outspoken. Its very spirit of politeness exacts that you say what you are expected to say, and no more. But I am not a polite teaist. So much harm has been done already by the mutual misunderstanding of the new world and the old, that one need not apologise for contributing his tithe to the furtherance of a better understanding. At the beginning of the twentieth century would have been spared the spectacle of sanguinary warfare if Russia had condescended to know Japan better. What dire consequences to humanity lie in the contemptuous ignoring of Eastern problems? European imperialism, which does not disdain to raise the absurd cry of the yellow peril, fails to realise that Asia may also awaken to the cruel sense of the white disaster. You may laugh at us for having too much tea, but may we not suspect that you of the West have no tea in your constitution? Let us stop the continents from hurling epigrams at each other, and be sadder, if not wiser, by the mutual gain of half a hemisphere. We have developed along different lines, but there is no reason why one should not supplement the other. You have gained expansion at the cost of restlessness. We have created a harmony which is weak against aggression. Will you believe it? The East is better off in some respects than the West. Strangely enough, humanity has so far met in the teacup. It is the only Asiatic ceremonial which commands universal esteem. The white man has scoffed at our religion and our morals, but has accepted the brown beverage without hesitation. The afternoon tea is now an important function in Western society. In the delicate clatter of trays and saucers, in the soft rustle of feminine hospitality, in the common catechism about cream and sugar, we know that the worship of tea is established beyond question. The philosophic resignation of the guest to the fate awaiting him in the dubious decoction proclaims that in this single instance the Oriental spirit reigns supreme. The earliest record of tea in European writing is said to be found in the statement of an Arabian traveller that after the year 879 the main sources of revenue in Canton were the duties on salt and tea. Marco Polo records the deposition of a Chinese minister of finance in 1285 for his arbitrary augmentation of the tea taxes. It was at the period of the great discoveries that the European people began to know more about the extreme Orient. At the end of the sixteenth century the Hollanders brought the news that a pleasant drink was made in the East from the leaves of a bush. The travellers Giovanni Battista Ramusio El Almeida Mafeno Tareira also mentioned tea. In the last-named year, ships of the Dutch East India Company brought the first tea into Europe. It was known in France in 1636, and reached Russia in 1638. England welcomed it in 1650, and spoke of it as that excellent and by all physicians approved China drink, called by the Chineans cha, and by other nations tay, alias tea. Like all good things in the world, the propaganda of tea met with opposition. Heretics like Henry Saville, 1678, denounced drinking it as a filthy custom. Jonas Hanway, Essay on Tea, 1756, 
said that men seemed to lose their stature and comeliness, women their beauty, through the use of tea. Its cost at the start, about fifteen or sixteen shillings a pound, forbade popular consumption, and made it regalia for high treatments and entertainments, presents being made thereof to princes and grandees. Yet, in spite of such drawbacks, tea-drinking spread with marvellous rapidity. The coffee-houses of London in the early half of the eighteenth century became, in fact, tea-houses, the resort of wits like Addison and Steele, who beguiled themselves over their dish of tea. The beverage soon became a necessity of life, a taxable matter. We are reminded in this connection what an important part it plays in modern history. Colonial America resigned herself to oppression until human endurance gave way before the heavy duties laid on tea. American independence dates from the throwing of tea-chests into Boston Harbour. There is a subtle charm in the taste of tea which makes it irresistible and capable of idealization. Western humorists were not slow to mingle the fragrance of their thought with its aroma. It is not the arrogance of wine, the self-consciousness of coffee, nor the simpering innocence of cocoa. Already in 1711, says the spectator, I would therefore in a particular manner recommend these my speculations to all well-regulated families that set apart an hour every morning for tea, bread, and butter, and would earnestly advise them for their good to order this paper to be punctually served up and to be looked upon as a part of the tea equipage. Samuel Johnson draws his own portrait as a hardened and shameless tea-drinker, who for twenty years diluted his meals with only the infusion of the fascinating plant, who with tea amused the evening, with tea solaced the midnight, and with tea welcomed the morning. Charles Lamb, a professed devotee, sounded the true note of teaism when he wrote that the greatest pleasure he knew was to do a good action by stealth, and have it found out by accident for teaism is the art of concealing beauty that you may discover it, of suggesting what you dare not reveal. It is the noble secret of laughing at yourself, calmly yet thoroughly, and is thus humour itself, the smile of philosophy. All genuine humorists may in this sense be called tea philosophers, Thackeray, for instance, and of course Shakespeare. The poets of the decadence, when was not the world in decadence, in their protests against materialism, have to a certain extent also opened the way to teaism. Perhaps nowadays it is our demure contemplation of the imperfect that the West and the East can meet in mutual consolation. The Taoists relate that at the great beginning of the no beginning, spirit and matter met in mortal combat. At last the Yellow Emperor, the Son of Heaven, triumphed over Shu Yung, the demon of darkness and earth. The Titan, in his death agony, struck his head against the solar vault and shivered the blue dome of jade into fragments. The stars lost their nests, the moon wandered aimlessly among the wild chasms of the night. In despair the Yellow Emperor sought far and wide for the repairer of the heavens. He had not to search in vain. Out of the eastern sea rose a queen, the divine Nuka, horn-crowned and dragon-tailed, resplendent in her armour of fire. 
she welded the five-coloured rainbow in her magic cauldron and rebuilt the Chinese sky. But it is told that Niuka forgot to fill two tiny crevices in the blue firmament. Thus began the dualism of love, two souls rolling through space and never at rest until they join together to complete the universe. Everyone has to build anew his sky of hope and peace. The heaven of modern humanity is indeed shattered in the cyclopean struggle for wealth and power. The world is groping in the shadow of egotism and vulgarity. Knowledge is bought through bad conscience, benevolence practised for the sake of utility. The East and the West, like two dragons tossed in a sea of ferment, in vain strive to regain the jewel of life. We need a Niuka again to repair the grand devastation. We await the great avatar. Meanwhile, let us have a sip of tea. The afternoon glow is brightening the bamboos. The fountains are bubbling with delight. The soughing of the pines is heard in our kettle. Let us dream of evanescence and linger in the beautiful foolishness of things. End of chapter 1